Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Can Apologetics Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show for you, planned for you today. Our special guest, the world-renowned apologist John Benko, will be joining us to answer some common questions about the Catholic faith. If you'd like to add a question today, you can call in at 515 9655. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. And also, I am available to come and speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. Are you there, John? I sure am. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, so our first question comes from Lloyd A., and he asks, Roman Catholics that are professionally and thus publicly known to be celibate are in an apparent contradiction to what Ignatius of Antioch taught. If anyone is able to abide in chastity to honor of the flesh of the Lord, let him so abide without boasting. If he boasts, he is lost. And if it be known beyond the bishop, he is polluted. It becometh men and women too, when they marry, to unite themselves with the consent of the bishop, that the marriage may be after the Lord and not after concupiscence. Let all things be done to the honor of God. And that's from Ignatius' letter to Polycarp, chapter 5, verse 2. So here we see that the first generation churches, celibacy was considered a private offering to the Lord. It was not to be brought to the public church's attention. 
no Christian established no Christian establishment, church, or movement should be setting celibacy as a prerequisite for anything. The only conclusion is that it must be kept private and irrelevant to officers offices in the church. So my answer to Lloyd is that when Ignatius was a celibate bishop of Antioch, there was a group of heretics that claimed to be Christians called the Docetists. They taught that Jesus was fully God, but only put on a human suit. Based on this, they taught that the flesh was bad, so we shouldn't have children because it traps souls in human bodies. The Docetists also like to brag that they were celibate to ensure that they were not creating more humans to trap souls in. This is why Ignatius doesn't want people to brag about being celibate. Christianity spread through having families and adopting the children abandoned by Roman pagans. As a practical matter, it was good to be celibate if you were a priest or bishop because the Romans and the Jews were persecuting Christians by having them arrested and killed if they would not adopt and worship the Roman gods. A single man is better able to give up his life to share the truth of a Catholic faith. Jesus tells us that celibacy is the better way in Matthew chapter 19, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that he wishes all men were like he is. Paul, Luke, Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, Mark, the Apostle John, Ignatius, and Polycarp were all single. A single man does not have to worry about dying for the sake of Christianity. A married man has to think about how his death would affect his family. And we see that even in the modern Catholic Church today, um, although many of the, well, all the Eastern rites do allow clergy to be married, and the Roman rite, clergy can be married, but the general rule is that they remain single. And there's great advantage in that, in that a parish only has to support one person instead of a whole family. And that one person is free to serve his parish full time. He doesn't have to split his time between his family and serving the parish. Many Protestant ministers that are married, you know, find themselves torn between serving their congregation and their family. Uh, a Protestant minister might have to choose between going to a family where somebody is dying, you know, on their deathbed to comfort them and going to their children's uh, play at school or a athletic event or a dance recital, things like that. Priest can go to that family because he has no other conflicting um, attentions in his life. So anything you'd like to add to that, John? Yeah, this is um, this is actually a very poorly formed argument. And just like so many others that are aimed at us, because it's, it really doesn't make a point. It doesn't draw a straight line from Catholics are wrong on this doctrine because of this evidence. It, it basically throws out, impugns what our motives are, like 
uh, the last time I was on, and we had someone that said, well, if Catholics look at a picture of the Virgin Mary, they believe the picture is actually the Virgin Mary. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's absurd. Uh, so what you're doing is is you're not only condemning our actions, but you're condemning what you perceive to be the motives or the uh, initiative behind those actions. So this person's not condemning celibacy for any practical reason. Uh, he's getting behind what he believes to be the motivation that all uh, priests do practice, priestly celibacy, are doing it, doing it for show. They're boasting. Well, you have to know mm-hmm. a person's heart in order to do that. So it speaks to humility, which is I want, want to give our listeners a, a interesting anecdote. So when I advertised myself as world famous Catholic apologist uh, John Benko for this show, it was kind of tongue in cheek. It was humor. Um, I actually <laughs> consider myself to be the fourth best apologist on my own network. But um, interestingly enough, each time I tried to connect this morning using world renowned apologist John Benko. It wouldn't let me connect. It's only when I put in John Benko that allowed me to connect. So apparently God didn't appreciate my sense of humor. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So anything else you want to add? No, that's it. The the question, like I said, the question was, was, was poorly formed and it's not it's not saying that Catholics are wrong on a certain doctrine for any particular reason. In order to try and, and impugn Catholics on this or, or to attack the Catholic position, he has to invent motivations. Well, how can I do that? How can I say that I could say that Ken did something wrong, but I can't say what the disposition of his heart was. Maybe you were just having a bad day, you know. Um, so, you know, to, to to basically with a broad brush say that all Catholic priests are practicing celibacy so they can boast, that's painting with a broad brush, don't you think? Right, exactly. Um, you know, I I only, you know, like criticize um, Protestants for, you know, what they say. I don't, I don't condemn them to hell. I don't try to impugn things that they might be thinking. Um, right. And the I other might thing that I notice that, that you don't do is that you don't add all kinds of hyperbolic names on top of it. In other words, oh. <laughs> um, we, you know, we say we disagree with our Protestant friends. We don't say we disagree with our cultists, Babylonian, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, all all this stuff that we get on on our end, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I often mention that I don't judge anybody whether they're going to heaven or hell because that's God's job, not mine. Yeah, that's Um, that's above our pay grade. (laughs) Right. I, I do comment that, you know, I believe you're heading in the wrong direction, you know, toward a cliff or something like that. Uh, and I tried to point them on the right path, but, you know, people have free will. If they want to walk over the cliff and end up in hell, that's up to them. Right, right. And, you know, Catholics believe that three things have to be uh, present for a sin to be mortal. And one, that it's that it's grave matter, 
and the second that it's done with full knowledge and deliberate consent. Well, the problem is that we can only ascertain the first. <laughs> we, exactly. we can establish that something is grave matter, but we can't know your full knowledge and deliberate consent because that means we would have to be able to read your heart. And again, that's above our pay grade. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's move on to the next one. Uh, this comes from my friend Imran, who is in Pakistan, and he's referring to 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 12 to 16, and let's see, yeah, verses 12 through 16, okay, and so in verse 12 is, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Have no fear, what, what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe, and Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed down with his face to the ground and did obeisance. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me, and answers me no more, either do the prophets, or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what to do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? So the question that Imran is, has here is like, you know, why was Saul able, able to go to a sorceress and who was able to call up Samuel from the dead, um, when we know that that's not allowed in the Catholic Church. But Saul had turned away from God and was about to face the Philistine army. He uses a medium to contact the dead prophet, Samuel, who tells them that Saul and his sons will die tomorrow in battle. Saul learns that he will die and therefore repents of his sin. And Leviticus reminds us that we should not contact mediums to contact the dead for our gain. Saul contacted Samuel to find out what was going to happen to him, not for personal gain. It was still wrong, the wrong thing to do, but people do wrong things all the time. The story also tells us that even great kings can turn from God and they will meet God's justice in the end. No one escapes God's justice. So, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, this is the age-old question that, um, you know, that people have pondered over for centuries. People a lot smarter than, than you and me have pondered hmm. over this for centuries. Why does God not intervene to stop people from doing uh, evil things? Uh, and, you know, the, the saints have had a lot to say about this over the, over the centuries, Ken. Uh, and it could be for a number of different reasons. One of those reasons is sometimes uh, 
God will um, permit, not allow, but permit us to uh, go forward with our self-destructive uh, actions uh, in order to bring us to the humiliation of, uh, okay, you did it your way. Now, see how that worked out for you? Uh, you know, kind of, kind of giving us a, a, a reckoning of where we true stand, uh, truly stand, and 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 our reliance uh, upon Him. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes God will permit, for reasons we can't understand, um, acts of just unspeakable evil by. Um, evil people who have no intention of, of repenting. And sometimes those evil actions uh, destroy the lives of, of uh, or, or seemingly do. Mm-hmm. And this is where faith comes in, Ken. If we, if we had all the answers, we'd be God. And, and, you know, faith must come in where, you know, where our intellect ends. So why did, why did God, uh, you know, permit uh, this this going forward of of going to this medium and carrying out this action when we can see clearly in other cases in the Old Testament, uh, God struck people dead for doing those kinds of things. Um, we don't know. You know, it's it, it's um, you know, it, it's like why did God preserve uh, Dan uh, the the the, the fire in the book of Daniel, but he did not preserve Joan of Arc from the flame. Why Why did God, I'm talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, why did God right. uh, preserve uh, Daniel from the lions, but he did not preserve Ignatius of Antioch from the lions? Mm-hmm. We, we don't know the answer to these questions, um, and um, so any answer that we give is, is going to be speculation or, or some kind of academic exercise, but it all comes down to faith in the end. Right. And, uh, we have to let God be God and we have to do our part. And, and, and uh, sorry for not getting all my uh, chapters and verses correct. I haven't had enough coffee this morning. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll talk a little bit more here and you go get another cup. And <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, you know, God loves us enough to allow us to choose to love him back. And true love requires a free will choice. So God can't coerce us into loving him because then that's not actual love. And some of our Protestant brothers and sisters that are, you know, follow the teachings of John Calvin that teaches double predestination and that some people are automatically destined to go to heaven and they can't do anything to change that. And most people are destined to hell and they can't do anything to change that either. But the Catholic Church teaches that God predestines everybody to heaven and that he wants everybody to go to heaven. Um, and First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, God wants all men to be saved, but all men are not saved because not all men choose God. And that's the difference between what the Catholic Church teaches and what John Calvin teaches. Well, 
I think the essential difference is that um, the John Calvin was a nutcase. <laughs> can we can we just say it? Uh, John Calvin, um, the the God of John Calvin <laughs> uh, was diabolical. This was not a just God. Um, mm-hmm. Mercy or judgment for that God is just a, a, arbitrary. I I liken it to a a boy playing with plastic soldiers in front of the fireplace, and and he arbitrarily picks up one and he throws it into the fireplace and he puts takes picks up another one and puts it in his toy box. That that's the God of of Calvinism, and it bears no resemblance to the all just and all merciful God of the Bible. That being said, let's talk about all of our Protestant brothers and sisters who do not fall into the extreme of, of Calvinism. Choosing God is an act of the will. It's not just an assent of the heart and of, and of words. It's an act of the will. It's something that has to be demonstrated. It has to be proven. It's 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 just lip service if it's not put into action. So, you know, um, there was a wise man who once said the greatest cause of atheism in the world is people who praise God with their lips but deny him with their lifestyle. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, you know, and the Bible talks about this extensively. If you say you love God but you hate your next-door neighbor, then you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. Um, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but that's that's basically what 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 the Bible um, says. We must love the Lord our God with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, and our whole strength, and we must love our neighbor as ourselves. And right. one of the things that Protestants bring up, and I think this is very important to bring up here, Ken, is that they say, well, God is infinite, God is eternal. So there's nothing that we can do for God. There's nothing that we can give God that he doesn't already have. So, uh, you know, and they, and they use that to decry what they call works-based salvation. That, you know, all, our works are, you know, what, what value are our works to God? Well, they have a point. But what they don't realize or don't understand is that God has made a remedy for that. Jesus made a remedy for that, and that remedy is, Jesus says, what you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. So when we feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the imprisoned, Jesus says we're doing those acts of kindness to him. He he, he reckons that to us as if we're doing those acts of kindness to him. And it is that way that we prove our faith. We prove, you know, we prove our faith by charity. And uh, they they somehow miss that. Right. So we'll move on to the next one here. And uh, this comes from my friend Kashif, who is also in Pakistan. And he writes that the Pentecostals in his area insist that infant baptism is invalid because infants can't profess faith in Jesus, nor have the Holy Spirit experience. So my response to him to pass on to his Pentecostal folks over there in Pakistan is the first Christians were Jews and became 
part of God's covenant family at eight days old through circumcision. Paul links circumcision to baptism in Colossians chapter 2. And Peter preaches to the Jews in Acts chapter 2 and says that baptism forgives sins, gives the Holy Spirit, and is for the children. There are household baptisms in Acts chapter 10 and 16. Most Protestant churches practice infant baptism. And in 180 AD, Irenaeus, who learned the faith from Polycarp, who learned the faith from the Apostle John, wrote that we baptize infants and that we are regenerated through baptism. 210 AD, Origen of Alexandria wrote that the baptism of infants is a tradition handed on to us by the apostles. In 215 AD, Hippolytus of Rome wrote that wrote about baptizing infants as a standard practice of the church. And in 251 AD, the Synod of Carthage discussed baptizing infants, and they decided there was no need to wait until the eighth day to baptize. It was the heretical groups of early Christianity that wrote against infant baptism as the church was developing. And the idea that, you know, I mentioned all these different people from different areas of Christianity all around the Mediterranean. And that shows that from North Africa to what is now France to Turkey, and this was the practice all through Christianity from the very beginning. So it's not like I quoted one church father from one spot in of Christianity, you know, say in Antioch or something like that. This is a practice all around the Mediterranean where Christianity had spread. So anything you want to add on that? Yeah, Ken, you might be surprised, but I actually agree with the Protestants on this one. Um, I, I don't think that we should be baptizing infants. I think we should let the infants decide if they want to baptize themselves. Um, we should also let the infants uh, decide whether they want to be fed um, and whether we should we should give them water or not, um, whether they should be dressed, and um, we should allow them to name themselves. We shouldn't be naming infants. I mean, you know, where where do we get this get this practice of of naming infants? Oh wait, oh wait, it's in the Bible. <laughs> Jesus oh, yes. was named. Jesus was named on the uh, on the eighth day of his life. Oh wait a minute. Um, and he also was circumcised on the eighth day, and that was his entrance into the covenant of faith. And, oh, wait, Paul says that baptism is the new circumcision. So if you use syllogistic logic and you say that infants were circumcised, A, and baptism is the new circumcision, B, then C, infants should be baptized. So <laughs> it, it's it's to me it's it's an absolutely absurd argument to say that well infants aren't capable of faith so why are we baptizing uh infants well you you aren't baptizing infants because they're capable of faith you're baptizing infants so they will be capable of faith you you've got it backwards faith isn't something that derives from us 
It comes from God, and it's through mm-hmm. God's grace. So how do we receive that grace? Through baptism. So it, it's it's this whole idea that we turn the whole thing around, and, and uh, it, it's all oriented from us, as, as if, well, when I'm old enough to have faith, it doesn't matter how old you are. You can be 67 years old. And you're not going to have faith unless it comes from God. That's the first thing you need to recognize. You're not going to have faith of your own effort. And the ironic thing about it is some of the same people that argue this, that we have to wait until people are old enough to decide for themselves whether or not they're going to be baptized because they have to be old enough to decide whether or not they have faith. Some of these people are the same people that, on the other hand, are saying, well, there's nothing that you can do about it anyway. Your works don't have anything to do with it one way or the other. So this is what we call cognitive dissonance, trying to hold two contradictory views in your brain at the same time. And, you know, to me, we should follow the formula that they claim to follow, and that is, what does the Bible say about it? Well, the Bible says that infants were named and circumcised on their eighth day. And that includes Jesus. Jesus was given his name by Joseph on the eighth day of his life, which consequently was January 1st. And that is why all of time, all of our calendar year centers around January 1st, 1 BC, because that was the day in which Jesus entered the faith community. And that was the day in which he received his name. So, why wouldn't we emulate that if that's what the Bible shows? Right. And Pentecostal Protestants um, have this idea that, you know, the way that you know you've been saved is by having a Holy Spirit, you know, experience. And so um, that's how they think that you have to have that experience before you can be baptized because they that right. Holy Spirit experience is the the proof that you actually are saved. Yes. And uh, I, I want to say one more thing before we move on to the next question. Um, uh-huh. I was I was using a literary device called sarcasm, folks, um, because I know that we're going to be hearing from people that are going to be saying, you know what John said? He said we shouldn't feed babies. He said we right. should let babies die of dehydration. Um, it was sarcasm, folks. Okay. Anyway, please yeah. go on. <laughs> I, you know, again, if people look at the whole thing, you know, in context, that they should understand. Um, but, you know, yep, some people will only uh, look at hear what they want to hear. <laughs> yep, and hear what they want to hear. And, uh, but yes, the the Pentecostals develop this tradition. And also it's important to note that this idea that you have to have a Holy Spirit and experience to, to know that you are truly saved, you know, that actually started in the early 1900s. So, you know, yeah. these Pentecostals, you know, are thinking that Christians have been doing it wrong for 1900 years. <laughs> they didn't have that Holy Spirit and experience. You know, right. to know that they are saved. <laughs> right. So what happened was from the death of the last apostle, uh, 
around uh, around about 100 A.D. the uh, the Apostle John. So from that point all the way through to 1910 in Pilot Point, Texas, all of the Christians that lived in all those intervening years uh, had the wrong way, and they all died and went to hell. Not one of them was saved because none of them had that Holy Spirit experience. And um, we should be thankful to those folks in Pilot Point, Texas in 1910 for showing us the true path. Right. When, whenever somebody tells you this about a new way to be saved, you know, yeah. we need that's, to point out to more them, sarcasm, like, by the way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we need to point out to them, you know, the history of that tradition of being saved. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to the next one. Um, Marion asks, do Catholics think that the Bible is without error or conflict? And so my answer to her was, in the Catholic Church, we start with the message Jesus wanted us to receive that was passed on in the oral tradition of through the Word of God that we know as sacred tradition. The oral Word of God came before the written Word of God. Jesus didn't leave a Bible behind so that we would know what he taught. The New Testament has writings from eight authors, and only five of them actually walked with Jesus. Mark, Paul, and Luke were not apostles. Mark wrote what he learned from Peter. Luke wrote what he learned from many other witnesses years after the events. Paul mostly wrote corrective letters to the churches, providing them with teaching on how to live life as a Christian. But Paul also received um, information from Jesus directly. But Protestants are hung up on the written word of God because they have been taught that the written word of God is all that was passed on. There are certain detail conflicts in the accounts given to us in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 to 28, it says that the soldiers put a scarlet robe on Jesus. Yet Mark, in chapter 15, verses 16 and 17, says that they clothed him with purple. In John, chapter 19, 1 through 2, states the soldiers put a purple robe on him. We are not expected to read this as an error, but as a minor conflicting detail. Both colors represent royalty, which is what the Roman soldiers were trying to do. It is possible that the Roman soldiers first put a red robe on Jesus because they had one handy and later changed to a purple one. Instead of saying that one gospel is an error, we accept them as a written as written and passed on to us while recognizing that we are what we are supposed to learn from them. The writings that make up the New Testament were established about 350 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. The 27 writings of the New Testament were assembled from the 140 early Christian writings in existence in the late 300s. In 180 AD, Irenaeus writes that we only have four Gospels, because there were many others available at that time. Paul writes to the Colossians that they should exchange letters with the one he wrote to the Laodiceans. Yet we don't have the letter to the Laodiceans in the New Testament. 
This is because the criteria for being in the New Testament was that it had to be known to be written by an apostle or his secretary, read in churches known to be founded by an apostle, and it had to support what the church was already teaching. As late as 360 AD, the book of Revelation was rejected by the Council of Laodicea. And as early as 170 AD, we had a book of Revelation from Peter. All of the men that established the canon of the New Testament taught Catholic things like baptismal regeneration, the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, and the veneration of Mary. What we are expected to learn from the Bible is how God wants us to come to know him and how we are supposed to live after that. In the Catholic Church, we don't worry about the details about what Jesus did or did not do. We worry about the message of salvation that he taught. Protestant church founders start with their foundational verses that shape their new theology and then go through the Bible looking for the verses that support their new theology. The Catholic Church is rooted in first century Judaism because Christianity grew out of Judaism. The Catholic Church's interpretation is based on the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament. It is the New Testament overlaid on the Old Testament that brings out the deeper meaning of the Old Testament. As St. Augustine wrote, the New Testament is hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. So what would you like to add to that, John? All right, so let's look at this. I want to approach this one logically. So let's say there was a math problem. There was an arithmetic problem. Uh, I'm not even going to say what the arithmetic problem is, but let's just say there was a, this hypothetical arithmetic problem. And the, the question is, what is the answer to this arithmetic problem? And I said the answer was 21, and Ken said the answer was 17. Okay? Well, there's only three possibilities here. Either I am right, Ken is right, B, or both of us are wrong, C. Those are the only three possibilities. There's no scenario, since we've given two different answers, there's no scenario where Ken and I are both right. That's not possible. One of us has to be wrong. So the mm -hmm. only scenario is that one of us is wrong or both of us are wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So when the question is, do I believe that the Bible is without error, we first have to define what the Bible is. There's over 7,000 translations of the Bible that have been made, all right? And some of them pass, uh, 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 translate Genesis 3.15, for instance, as she will crush your head. And some of them translate it as he will crush your head. And some of them translate Luke 128 as hail full of grace. And others translate it as hail highly favored one. Well, someone has to be wrong. So the first answer to your question is, do we be, believe the Bible is without error? Well, that first is predicated on which version of the Bible that you're using. The King James Version of the Bible, for instance, and the New International Version of the Bible, for instance, are absolutely riddled with errors. The new, the new 
international version of the Bible, actually in one chapter, I think it's in Luke, it's either Luke chapter 11 or Luke, Luke chapter 13, they actually insert words into the, into the translation. Wow. The word, the, yeah, the, the word mother, for instance, is, is inserted into the translation. So that's, that's the first thing. So which version of the Bible is, is closest to that inerrancy that you're talking about? Well, I would say the Douay Reims or the, or the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. These are very good translations. The second thing is, how are you defining without error? Are you defining all the little, tiny little minutiae details about one version of the gospel says there were three witnesses, another version of the gospel says there's two witnesses, uh, one version says the cloak was purple. The other says the cloak was scarlet. Or are you saying free from error in terms of doctrines and faith and morals, which is what in, inerrant means, what infallible means? So then the third thing is, are we? does that mean if we concede that the Bible is materially inerrant in the proper version in the proper translation does that mean that your interpretation is without error because that's what this question is essentially uh for it's a loaded question ken to say okay well if you say the bible is in error then why do you go against this particular that says yeah, that's just an example. We've seen this a hundred times. Okay, well, if you believe the Bible is an error, in Matthew 23, 9, it says, call no man father, and yet you call your priest father. So here you're clearly acting against the Bible. Well, no, we're acting against your interpretation of the Bible. <laughs> you're, in, you're interpreting it incorrectly. So do we believe mm -hmm. that the Bible correctly translated is inerrant, free from... from uh, you know, doctrinal error? Of course. Yes, we believe that. If it's a correct version and it's correctly translated, yes. Does that believe your interpretations are without error? No, we don't believe that. Right. And the interpretation of, of the actual words is always the uh, the key sticking point. And uh, our Protestant brothers and sisters have a big problem with that. And that's right. why there's so many different Protestant churches. And and the yep. issue is because because Jesus gave a remedy for that. And the remedy that Jesus gave is, well, not don't go out and form another another congregation. His remedy for that is in Matthew chapter 18. Take it to the church. And if they will not listen even to the church, then teach him as a uh, treat him as a, a unbeliever or a publican. Jesus promised to guide the church towards all truth and the church gave us the bible see they've got this thing backwards they got they 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 believe the bible gave us the church no the church gave us the bible even the bible right. itself testifies to the church and saint augustine said he wouldn't be even believe in the scriptures if not first led there by the church mm -hmm. yep uh no protestant church has a historical record on how they decided which books would make up the Bible. Right. Um, they they do try to like chain things together and uh, to 
come up with the canon of scripture, <laughs> but uh, you know, yeah, even the the beginning of their chain is based on the premise of already having a Bible. So <laughs> right, yeah, I I love how the the Bible canonizes itself and the Bible interprets itself. Um, you know, I probably have just right off the top of my head, probably seven or eight different versions of the Bible. I've got the Jerusalem version. I've got the Revised Standard version. I've got uh, I've actually got a couple of different editions of the Revised Standard version. I've the Douay. Uh, I've got uh, I've got the King James just for reference. Quite a few ver- Bible versions. Um, I haven't been able to find the one that uh, that interprets itself. Um, I set it on my nightstand. And I always have to reach over and open it. I, I I haven't found that self self interpreting Bible yet. Have you have you been able to find one of those, Ken? Um, no, I I did find an audio Bible, but not uh, a self interpreting Bible. In fact, let me give a let me give a plug. I got software that it, this is the greatest stuff in the world. I want to give it a plug on your show. Go to faithdatabase mm-hmm. uh, com. That's faithdatabase.com. You can get the full software for about 40 bucks, and you can get all of the additional things that go with it, all the additional plugins and add-ons for about another 40 bucks. And it's a treasure trove. It's got like every every church council document, a document all of the books, so, so many of the books of the great saints, Story of a Soul by uh, St. Teresa of Lisieux. It's got St. John of the Cross, it's got Aquinas, it's got Augustine. I mean, just every church document, every papal encyclical, and it's got 10 different versions of the Bible, including the Latin and Greek. It's it's, it's absolutely fantastic. You can go to faithdatabase.com and, and get it. So I got 10 versions of the Bible right there. I said before I only had seven. I got 10 right on my right on my computer. So again, again, not enough coffee. <laughs> I was going to say that makes a total of seventeen, but you, you know, I'm sure the the KJV is in the uh, the software version and on your shelves. So right, that would be right. redundant. Yeah. So you're down to at least sixteen. Yep. Uh, so speaking of interpretation of the Bible, uh, we have another question here from Marie. And that she writes, John ten seven says, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. In ten verse John ten verse nine says, I am the door. By me if many if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go out and go in and find pasture. And John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman, also known as a vine dresser. And in John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, shall bring forth much fruit, without, for without me you can do nothing. So what Marie is getting at is like, you know, Jesus says he's the door, he's also the vine. We Catholics also mentioned that Jesus says 
that we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. And when Jesus says this in John chapter 6, most of the Jews left him over this hard saying. However, no Jews that left, left Jesus when he said that he was the door or the vine. The Jews understood when Jesus was speaking literally and figuratively, because they were there when Jesus was speaking, and they knew what he was talking about. Um, Protestants years later, just reading the words in the Bible, come up with all kinds of interpretations. Um, the Jews, yeah, Jesus showed his disciples how they could eat his flesh and drink his blood at the Last Supper, which was an evolution of the Passover meal. And we find the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22, and Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We don't have any Christians in the first generation saying that this door is Jesus or this vine is Jesus. But we do have the writings of the first generation's generation of Christians saying that the Eucharist is Jesus' body and blood. Those that claim to be Christians and don't believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist were considered heretics from the very beginning. So what would you like to add to that, John? <laughs> Much. Um, okay, so Jesus did say that he is the door. Okay, and uh -huh. Jesus did speak um, many things that are plain and easy and simple and direct. For instance, when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Not much gray area there. Easy to interpret, easy to understand. Uh -huh. But then Jesus said things like, you strain out a gnat and swallow a candle. <laughs> okay, that one's a little bit tougher. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Um. Jesus said, if your eye be thy fault, pluck it out. If your hand be your fault, cut it off. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. So those are a little bit harder on us, okay? Mm -hmm. because, right. Jesus is, because Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. So there are times that Jesus spoke direct. There are times that Jesus used hyperbole. There are times that Jesus spoke in uh, metaphorical or, or, you know, in parables. And mm -hmm. what we have to do is we have to read the passage in its context and say, okay, what is Jesus doing here? Is Jesus speaking in a symbol here? Is Jesus speaking in a metaphor here? And, you know, Jesus was very clear when he was speaking metaphorically, when he was speaking symbolically. But he was also very clear when he was speaking directly. And one of the things that you knew when Jesus was speaking directly, he would say things like, verily, verily, I say to you. Mm -hmm. Okay? In other words, this you need to know. That he's, and I'm being direct here. Truly, I say to you. <coughs> and Jesus said, <coughs> excuse me, truly, I say to you, my flesh is real food and my blood is true drink. And he does not he who does not eat my flesh and drink my blood has no life in him. Okay? 
So yep. she's right when she says that Jesus says that I am the door. But Jesus also said that there's many false Christ and many false messiahs that would come along in his name pretending to hit, to be him. So are you following the true Jesus? You say you're following Jesus, but are you following the Jesus of Islam? That's a false Jesus. <clears throat> are you following the Jesus of the Mormons? That's a false Jesus. Are you following the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses? That's a false Jesus. The true Jesus Paul talks about. And what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives a verse here that I think is it's almost frightening in its clarity. And that is verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. In fact, I'm not even going to say it's almost frightening. It is frightening. He who eats and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. That's verse 27. For as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's verse 26. So (laughs) Paul doesn't give you any wiggle room here. Uh, to, To discern means to recognize. So what Paul is saying is if you eat, if you eat the bread and drink the cup, and there are a lot of so-called Catholics who are doing this, Ken, so-called Catholics uh-huh. who are doing this, eating the bread and drinking the cup without recognizing it as the body and blood of our Lord. And what does Paul say you do when you do that? You eat and drink judgment upon yourself. Well, Maria, how can you eat and drink judgment upon yourself if it's just a piece of bread and a glass of grape juice? <clears throat> Sorry, that 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 dog don't hunt. Right. Paul makes it very clear that it is very real, and that uh, it can harm you if you do not discern it discern it properly. Yeah. Like I said, not only clear but frighteningly clear. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we do well to pay attention. Yeah, yeah. That's one of those. That's one of those points when you get out your pencil or your notepad. Okay, you're gonna to want to write this one down. Right. And you know, and that's the great thing about the church fathers, in that you know they can give you a historical chain of evidence on how the Bible was interpreted from the very beginning. And it's true that the church fathers don't all agree with one another. But, you know, for the most part, they do agree, and there will be a consensus among the church fathers. And that's why they held early church councils, you know, local councils, to hammer out problems or, you know, um, hammer out interpretations. Well, the beauty um, of it I, is, is even, even the church fathers who disagreed initially <clears throat> were brought into the fold. And they and they were brought into the fold by obedience, because although they were in error, because they followed the church, they followed the Pope, they followed the Holy Spirit, they were able to be brought into. So initially, Jerome even even you know objected to some of the Deuterocanonical books, but he was brought into the fold. 
because uh, the Holy Spirit will re- will lead the obedient to the truth. But you have to be mm-hmm. obedient. And uh, just because a church father writes something at one time doesn't mean that they always held that belief. And uh, unless the church dogmatizes something, you know, different theological opinions are allowed. Um, so we don't have to worry about those minor conflicts in the church fathers. Uh, and they just also, you know, just like the Bible, their writings can be misinterpreted by modern Protestants, you know, that are starting with their preconceived ideas and then reading back into what is actually what was actually written by the church father. Right. And the thing is like uh, well Irenaeus of Lyon, he writes about the different heresies that were available at his time and none of them sound like Protestant churches today back then. Um in the Nag Hammadi text um, from, well, the library found at Nag Hammadi um, has a lot of heretical texts in it, and you won't find Protestant um, interpretations in there. Um, the Arians who thought that Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father, you know, kind of goes along with the modern Jehovah Witnesses. Um, in that they don't recognize Jesus as God. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, the Mormons also get it wrong um, yeah. because they have a misunderstanding of what God is. Hey, I'm going to be a God and I get my own planet. What a deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds good. But, yeah. you know, not real. I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to work out for you. <laughs> no. So that's hey, all we have hey, for today. Yeah. Hey, Ken, do you mind? I know we're going yep. to go a, a couple of minutes into the archive here, but I think it's worth it. Do you mind if I tell your listeners uh, some of the stuff that's coming up on the four persons? We've got some great stuff coming up that they're going to be interested. Sure. Let's get all that in there. Yeah. So let's start with, uh, first of all, every day at 3.30 uh, Eastern time, uh, including today, Richard Pettis is doing the Divine Mercy Saint of the Day and the Daily Update. I've been providing the Daily Update. Uh, And then he's following through Christmas Eve. He's going to be, and he started yesterday, going to be doing the St. Andrew Christmas Novena. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's primarily for the intentions of uh, estranged families, reconciliation of estranged families during the holidays but also for any of the intentions of any of our listeners. So you'll have that uh, at 30 today. That'll be the continuation of that and every day. Tomorrow at 12 noon Eastern time, uh, it's a pre-recorded episode of of William Hemsworth, the Burt Toasted Coffee Show. But the guest is Dr. Scott Hahn. I'd say that's a pretty heavy hitter, wouldn't you? Yes, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. And then that night, Saturday evening, on the Lisa Marie Nicole show at 7 p.m. Eastern, she's got another heavy hitter. 
uh, world-renowned apologist John Martinoni is going to be the guest on Lisa Marie Nicole's show. I think that's a pretty pretty awesome uh, Saturday lineup, don't you think? Yes. People should then, definitely be tuning in. Yes. And then Monday, uh, Luke and I will uh, – Luke Haskell and I will continue with part 12 of our uh, – wrap of the uh wrap up of the gospel of matthew uh i think that we're we're going to have two more episodes i think we'll have this one and then another one and we'll wrap up the gospel of matthew so monday we'll be getting into chapter 25 and 26 uh, and chapter 25 is the kryptonite for faith alone protestants <laughs> is that that is the that is the chapter of the bible that is just absolute kryptonite to their theology now Tuesday, December 5th, another doubleheader. At 8 o'clock a.m., we're going to have world-renowned apologist Steve Ray is going to be on live, and he's going to be talking about our upcoming trip to the Holy Land. I'm, I'm going to be going to the Holy Land next year. I'm so excited. I'm so absolutely <laughs> excited. As a guest of Steve Ray, we're going to be talking about that, and then Two o'clock, same day, world-renowned Catholic singer, performing artist, you've heard her music on our shows, Donna Corey Gibson. And, Ken, she is just a, just a tremendous talent. Uh, mm -hmm. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, back to our regular lineup with Catholicism Rocks, Taking it to the streets, your show, William's show. And then on Sunday, December 10th, we're going to be having uh, two family members of the Rock Company calling us live from the city of Bethlehem. Wow. From Bethlehem, Israel, uh, actually at the location of the Shepherd's Field. And they're going oh. to be calling in. In fact, they promised me this morning to um, pray for all of us and to put our uh, our intentions uh, by lighting candles at the Church of the Nativity, the actual birth site of our Savior. They're going to be calling in December 10th from Bethlehem. So that's what's coming up on the on the on the four persons. I'm, I'm so excited where this thing is going. And then also, just want to ask our listeners, go to our YouTube channel and check out our three-part video on the case for Christmas. I, I think you'll be pleased at how it came out. Yes, it a, makes a great case for Christmas, and you have great music and visual effects for that. Uh, and it will remove all doubt on the date of Christmas because you make a very thorough and rock-solid case as to why we know that Jesus was born on December 25th. And, and I think there is actually an appearance by world-renowned Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield on that piece, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I have a, a tiny sliver of a part on there. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Thank you for having me on, and uh, it, it's always fun to, to, to do these shows, and um, I, I really enjoyed it. Yes, thanks for uh, joining me, John, and uh, it's great when we do these together. Uh, 
because it adds a lot more depth to uh, the answers. So thanks for tuning in today, all of you fans. And if you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. And that's Catholic Ken with a K and at the number four persons.com. And if you'd like to have me come speak at your parish on this or many other topics, you can send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. Thanks for joining me, John, and may God bless and guide all of your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. God bless. Thanks. Bye.